Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Okay, before we begin... Are there any questions that that you have up to this point? No? Yeah. Okay, when I'm talking about dualism, and that would be like the Persians with their Zoroastrianism and then Manichaeism, and many of the uh, mystery religions in the early... um, early centuries of the church, that was kind of the competition. They also had these mystery religions. They tend to do, um, they take entities and they divide them into good and bad. Um, So you have good and evil, you have light, you have darkness, you have soul, you have body. Sometimes they would have two gods. So they would have the good God and the bad God and the evil God. And and that even goes back into the ancient world. Uh, To a certain degree, we don't, Satan is not a God figure, he's, he's an angel, a fallen angel, but you, you do have, in the, in the Christian sense, this idea of good and bad and a being connected with good, God, and a being connected with evil, Satan, and that's very real. But in other um, religious traditions, they take that further, and they have the understanding that there's the God of good, and then there's the God of evil. And so... Um, Like Mazda, I think the Zoroastrian one was Mazda was the god of light and he was the good god. And then there was an evil god as well that they were always in conflict with one another. And when there were problems that would happen in the world, it was because of their conflict. Now, the problem with uh, dualism in general is philosophically it's hard to um, understand. And this is what Plato, Aristotle, and the classical Greeks came to an understanding Uh, The classical Greeks, when when they were doing their philosophy, came to the conclusion that there can't really be many gods and there can't be a a dualism either because there has to be one that supersedes and creates. And and so Aristotle refers to it as, you know, the unmoved mover. There has to be, you know, a single source because if you have two, then you say, well, who created the two and how did the two come into existence? But if you have one eternal um, God that is before time and space and everything else, then that holds up philosophically, whereas you have uh, multiple gods. It doesn't really hold up in the same way. There would still have to be this one. Later on with Plato and Aristotle and their influence, Plato probably more than Aristotle, the Romans at the time, it was very trendy to have uh, philosophies that were talking about this one, what they call like nous, in Greek, but uh, Plotinus, for example, um, he was one that talked about everything emanating from the one. And uh, one of the problems with this historically in the church was that because they had this idea of the strict oneness that was necessary philosophically, they had a hard time with the Trinity. Because although as God is one, he's three persons. And so then you have people influenced by this philosophy like Arius, who came up with Arianism, which describes Jesus as being the highest of all of God's creation, but not equal to the Father. 
You know, so that's a consequence of philosophy, but it's a consequence of uh, taking a philosophical system and putting that above the gospel. Now, at the same time, there's a philosophical... Um, you can f- make the Trinity by using proper philosophy, reasonable and rational, in, in, a, in a transcendent sense. You know, so it doesn't go against logic and ration, rational thinking like uh, you know, polytheism and dualism does. Um, but it supersedes some of the categories that were around at the time of Plutinus. And so Arius, basically, he got sucked up into the philosophy and then promoted this and eventually was condemned by the Council of Nicaea. Um, but anyway, I'm going off on another tangent here, but you get the idea, right? And, and so I think there's always this, because people in their gut instinct, they know that there's good and there's bad. And so they try to describe, well, why is there good and bad? And, and an easy answer for that would be, well, there must be a good God and a bad God. You know, but the problem with that is it doesn't, it doesn't hold up when you look at it from different angles. Um, that being said, Zoroastrianism, even though it, it's not a huge religion or anything, there are still a few uh, people who practice that religion even today. Yeah. All right. So any other questions? You guys had one yesterday, but I was trying to remember what it was. Well, you mean mine or Well, both of you. Catherine had one about Ezra and... Like the, the the Jews marrying and well no, I just you know, when it came to uh like Ruth or even um, Oh that's what it was Ruth and and, and then Ezra. Yeah, it was quite different because they embraced the Israelite religion and then Ezra's that was all I just Okay. Yeah, then the uh last night I talked about when Ezra came back from the Babylonian exile, there was the temptation to assimilate with the pre-existing gods that were in the area, the Canaanite gods and the Samaritans, and having a synchronistic type of worship. And Ezra and the Jews that came back from Babylon, they, were, uh, they wanted to maintain their identity, their culture, and their faith. And so that's the reason why they were saying you can't marry outsiders. You have to marry Jews, because they were afraid of the outsiders influencing and corrupting the proper Jewish religion. The book of Ruth gives a different description, and the, they think that it was written at the same time that this was going on with, with Ezra, post-exile. And Ruth was talking about this faithful Moabite who ended up becoming, through her faithfulness and accepting the Jewish ways and then moving back with Naomi, that she was a heroine, even though she was an outsider because she was brought into the Jewish faith and she was faithful. And she ends up being one of the descend not descendants, but David becomes a descendant of hers. And so this shows that, you know, well, if God favored Ruth in a way that David comes from her, then who are we to exclude foreigners who might want to become good Jews? But the, the difference is, you know, the Jews have to be strong enough to keep their identity and their culture and their religion and not be tainted and influenced by the outsiders. And uh, so Ezra was taking a hardline approach, whereas the book of Ruth is saying, well, there may be people that would become good Jews, and therefore they should be encouraged. And what's interesting about this, those, it, it seems like Ezra and his policies 
were somewhat necessary at the time, even as, as harsh as they seemed, because they needed to preserve their identity after something as uh, traumatic as a move back to their homeland and rebuilding and, and all this. But over time, there was a real change that happened in the Jewish religion where it became less a nationalistic type of religion. And there was this projection of the idea that, well, since God is a God of everyone and not just the God of Israel and us, then we need to be as Jews light to the nations and we need to help everyone else to understand that there is only one God and he is Yahweh. And at the same time, all the other nations one day will become Jews in a sense. And this is something that they take on as a bit of a, um, as part of their identity, that that's their, uh, their role as believers is to project the truth of, of the true God to others around them. And then from that point, the Jews start becoming more and more into proselytizing proselytizing, uh, the other nations around them. And at the time of the Jewish empire, the the Jews were very uh, successful at that, actually. And they had so much so that the Romans gave the Jews permission not to have to offer sacrifice to Caesar, which was uh, not the case with other religions at the time. So anyway, but it, it is true that there's always a bit of a conflict here. How do we preserve and keep our identity? Yet at the same time, we're open to others becoming good Jews. And then eventually it's like, well, how do we get this message out there? And then later on at the time of Jesus and the church, it's like, how do we get the gospel out there? And how do we get the fullness of the understanding of what God is doing and in, in with the sense of monotheism to all the cultures around us? You know, but at the earlier days... People didn't necessarily try to convert people into being Jews. And what happened later, though, is that the Jews more and more saw it as their charism to get that message out there. And so they were actively uh, pursuing converts to Judaism. And even Jesus mentions that as well in in somewhat of a negative sense. But it does talk about um, that the Jews going to the ends of the world to try to convert people to Judaism. And so anyway, overall, that is a positive thing, of course. All right, any other? Yeah. Right. Okay, so, yeah, Nathan the prophet tells David that he would, his descendants, there would be a throne indefinitely, basically, is what he, what he was saying. And so part of the problem was, is that the Jews, because they remembered this prophecy, they thought they were invincible. And they thought there would never be a time when Jerusalem would be conquered or the temple would be destroyed because they've got the divine promise that the, the reign of David would, would be, you know, last forever. And the problem with the Babylonian exile is during that time, you have some of the other prophets that were saying, no, that's not the case. Like Jeremiah, for example, I know you think we're all going to be here forever and the Babylonians aren't going to conquer us, but you behave stupidly by rebelling against him. And now we're going to be taken captive and deported. And, and so they were telling people this, but there were still people who believed that, wait, that can't happen because of the promise that God promised that this could never happen. Now, we all know that the Babylonian exile did happen, 
And then later, when it came time to put the king uh, back in place after the, the Persians, the Edict of Cyrus, they came back. Then <clears throat> at that time, the, uh, they put a descendant of David back as kind of like the mayor at the time, and the Persians didn't like it. So they got rid of him, and that was the end of Davidic rule in Jerusalem or Israel at that time. And so the way that um, Christians understand this, I, I can't speak for the Jews. I don't know how they would describe it. And I'm sure they have a, a description or a reason. But the way we describe it is there was still this line of David that, that continued. And it continued almost like as this remnant type of line. And then Jesus, who is a son of David, he is, he is part of that lineage of David. And because he is the Messiah... He is the great king, and then his kingship does last forever. And so we as Christians would look at that promise of Nathan as being fulfilled in Jesus, and then his kingdom does last forever. And when there's the, um, the continuation of Jesus who sends the Spirit to be with the church, and I will be with you until the ends of time, it just shows that, uh, that he's got this eternal kingdom. And even at the end of time, when you have the new heavens and the new earth, we still have that eternal kingdom that goes back to David. Because Jesus, they always refer to him as the son of David, which is a kingly title, but it's also a messianic title. All right. Any other ones? Yeah. Well, Luke and Matthew both have genealogies. You know, the question was, what about the genealogy of, of Jesus, I'm assuming, right? So Luke and Matthew both have genealogies that, that connect Jesus to David. Um, but there is a slight difference. You've got, on one hand, you've got one starting with Abraham. And then on the other one, you have it starting um, from Adam and Eve. So um, interestingly enough, we'll, we'll get to some of this in the New Testament but the genealogy of Matthew goes back to Abraham because Matthew was written primarily for a Jewish audience. And so Matthew, the evangelist, was trying to show that there's a connection between Jesus going through David all the way back to Abraham. And then he's got it divided up in, in, a, in a sense. In Luke's gospel, he has a genealogy as well, but it goes back all the way to Adam and Eve, showing, well, you know, there's, there's a genealogy or a connection going all the way back not only to Abraham, but to all people, which would include the Gentiles, because it goes back to Adam and Eve. John's gospel does it in a different way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So that's a very short genealogy in a sense, but that's what John does. He takes it back not only to Adam and Eve, but he takes Jesus back to in the beginning. So it predates history and time and, and creation even. So... Anyway, three approaches to that. The literal genealogies that we have with Matthew and Luke don't exactly match. And there are some different theories about why they're not exactly the same. But what it does show is that Jews consider ge genealogies very important and they like to show their ancestry. And actually, they kept some pretty good records to a certain degree. And whether Jesus was uh, a descendant of David, literally, I think he was. And the genealogies, I think, show that tradition. Um, but the problem is, how are you going to do that when we don't have archaeological evidence and written records that go back that show it in a strict sense? But, 
But anyway, it does show that Jesus goes back to David through these genealogies. Well, you also got Joseph, though. Well, keep in mind that Joseph, that we'll do this stuff in the New Testament days, but so we always say, we always say the adopted, like Jesus is, Joseph is the adopted father. Now I'm saying this. Jesus is like Joseph adopted Jesus kind of, what do we call him? The stepfather or something like that. In, in the Jewish mindset that if you are the father and you take this son, Jesus into your house, you're not the foster father. You are the father. So they never would have made any distinction between Joseph being a foster father. That came later on, and it just showed that he didn't, he didn't have relations with Mary, and then you know she gave birth, that he wasn't the biological father, but he was, according to the law, the father. All right, but we need to get back to other stuff, I suppose. Are, are there any other questions before I move on here? Everyone's good? All right, so let's look at let's look at Maccabee. We'll see. We did Esther. All right, so we're going to look at first and second Maccabees. Um, first and second Maccabees are part of the uh, deuterocanonical works. They were later. They're written later, and they were written in Greek, and they were written at a time that was dealing with. That, as I mentioned before, the Seleucid Greeks that came down and conquered um, the Ptolemies, and in consequence of that was the Israelites who were there at the time, or the Jews, I should say, that were there. Yeah. All right, so Alexander the Great, he died at 32 years old. He was pretty young when he died, and he had no plan for dividing up the kingdom afterwards, so the generals did that. And the struggle between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies for, um, for the different areas and land, since Israel was right in the, uh, they were the borderland, then eventually the Seleucids came down, they conquered the Ptolemies, and as a consequence, they were in control of Israel now. And for the first emperor that came, it wasn't that, it wasn't that big a deal because he just, he didn't, he okayed the Mosaic law, basically. But then when there was this Antiochus Epiphanes, then he starts forcing Hellenism on the people. And this was around the time of 175 to 164 BC. So you can say we've, we've kind of moved some timeline, haven't we? So we're here at the time when, when the uh, Greek-speaking uh, empires are coming down and, and influencing the Jews and trying to force... Hellenism, which is the Greek culture, which is the very dominant culture on the Jews themselves. And it's one thing I think it should be noted that when you're talking like Babylonians and Persians and Medes and, and uh, Syrians, those are Middle Eastern cultures. And so there's some sort of harmony between them and Israel. But now the Greeks were Western and they were different in many different ways than the Semitic um, tribes and cultures that were around them, and even Egyptian for that matter. You know, there was more in common with the Eastern emperors than there were with the Western ones. So Antiochus starts forcing Hellenism, and then a, a, another Antiochus, you notice a lot of their names are similar, like, like when you're looking at many of the emperors. 
But Antiochus V granted religious freedom to a certain degree. So that was between 164 and 161. So, so for about 10 years, they were forcing Hellenism. And then the next emperor granted some religious freedom. But then what we're talking about here is the Maccabean Revolt. And so the Maccabean Revolt happened between 160, 167 is when it started, and it continued on until they had Hasmonean kings. And that was at 140 to 37 BC. So you, you get almost a 100-year period here, or a little more than 100 years, where they had these kings. But these particular kings, they were not from the line of David. They were just kings. And so therefore many of the Jews didn't consider them to be real kings, even though they were ruling, in a sense, like kings. Um, Another thing that happened during this time is it was the beginning of two branches of Judaism. One is the uh, Pharisees, which we're all familiar with, and the other is the um, Sadducees. So the Sadducees were the, the, the priestly Jews that became in charge of the temple, and the Pharisees were the ones that they thought that these Hasmonean kings were not real kings. So they started to be, originally the word Pharisee means one who stands apart from the people, you know, that they're separate from, meaning they're the only holy ones and the other ones are somewhat degraded in that. But the Pharisees um, started actually in that Hasmonean period. And that was the beginning of the, uh, the idea of the Jews being the teaching because the, the Pharisees were the teachers whereas the um, Sadducees were the, the sacrificial temple priests. Okay, so, but that was the beginning of that. So this happened with the Greek influence, because not only did the Greeks come down and conquer a lot of that area, but they also had um, a Greek diaspora where um, they scattered Greek civilizations in a lot of areas in which they conquered. And so you may have heard of the Decropolis, the, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus goes in certain times to the Decropolis, like with the pigs that go flying into the water and, you know, the uh, demoniac, garrison demoniac that, that uh, gets healed and the pigs, the spirits go into the pigs and the pigs fly and then drown. Well, those were in what they call the Dep- Decropolis. There were 10 Greek cities that were on the um, east side of the Sea of Galilee. So there, were, there was a Greek settlement in there. But the Greeks also brought in temples. They brought in gymnasiums. All right, we think of gyms like, you know, basketball and all this kind of thing. But gymnasiums back then were places where young men would go and they would have exercises and things like that. But everything was done um, naked. And they also were um, doing many of the different Greek exercises and sports and things like that that were uh, part of the Greek experience, but definitely not a part of the Jewish experience. But there was some appeal to this as well. It's kind of like today with the young kids that go up and it's like, I want to do everything that's cool and hip. Well, back then they were doing the same sort of thing. And uh, so there was this allure uh, by the young people to say, hey, I want to be part of this, you know, kind of young, new way that the Greeks are showing. And so so the, this appeal was, but the the elders of Israel... And those who were following the law saw those Greek ways as a threat. So the stadiums and the youth centers and the theaters and the temples, even Greek education, there was this scientific and philosophical knowledge that came around with it. And so now for the first time, uh, Jews have some 
cultural competition, so to speak, and they need to respond in some way. So one response was, well, yes, Greeks have their, their philosophy, but you know, we have real wisdom because we have God and his wisdom supersedes and is much greater than any earthly wisdom that these Greek philosophers might bring about. But the upper class tended to have this elitism among themselves. And so the upper class was always being drawn to be, I want to be more sophisticated and more cultural. And so they were much more likely to be influenced by the, the Greek presence than the, the priests, the scribes, and, and the Jewish um, law uh, followers of the everyday person. And so to a certain extent, you can see why there was some conflict going on at this time because here you have this, this Greek culture that was strong, it was powerful, um, it, was, it was something that was um, easily absorbed by the elite and the young, and the, uh, uh, the Greek culture was very sophisticated in its own right, and it was very alluring, and it was very attractive to a lot of people. At the same time, though, the Hellenism that was happening when Antiochus came down and started trying to force Hellenization on the people, saying, you know, you will worship like us, and you will act like us, you will speak Greek. And when he was doing this, it was too much, and so the Jews began to rebel. And as they did that, they needed to find some leaders, and they needed to find some supporters. So the Jewish people that were faithful to the law and temple, um, there was one called Mattathias, and he initiates a crusade. It was kind of like, well, we've had enough, we're starting it. And so this started the, the Maccabean Revolt. And then there was Judas Maccabeus. He lived from 166 to 160 BC. And uh, from chapter 3 to chapter 9, it, it goes through and starts showing these Jewish victories. So against all odds, because really the, uh, the Greeks were very, very strong and powerful with their armies and with their military tactics. Yet the Jews who had no real good weapons and they had no good tactics and they just started a revolt and they started winning these victories. Um, eventually what happens in, uh, at the end when in 160 BC, they actually they come to win enough of these battles where they have autonomous rule. And so now they want to re-consecrate the temple. Now, one of the reasons they had to reconsecrate the temple is because one of the things that the Greeks did is they turned the temple into a, um, into a Greek temple. And so they sacrificed a pig, for example, on the altar, which would have been abhorrent to, to a Jew. The idea that you're sacrificing an unclean animal and a pig of all things on the, on the temple altar. The other is that there was uh, another tradition was that there was a statue of Zeus that was brought into the temple. And so, of course, Zeus was, you know, one of the Greek gods. And so they needed to not only get rid of those things, but they needed to re-consecrate the temple so they could do proper worship in the Jewish tradition. And so that happened at about 160 B.C. At the same time, they knew that they wouldn't be able to survive on their own and so they were looking for natural alliances and so one of the alliances they made was with rome and you'll see that they actually have a pretty glowing description 
of the Romans. They're saying, oh, they're noble people and they're going to help us and everything's wonderful. And um, they're going to regret that, of course, in another hundred years or so. But, but at least at this time, they're starting to set those uh, political alliances that will be the downfall eventually when the Romans come in. It probably would have happened anyway. But this way, the, some of the Romans, as they came in, and the Jews that were responding to that were saying, well, we brought it on ourselves because we, we let them in. You know, so there's, there's that mentality that comes with it. So Judas's brother, Judas Maccabees' brother, Jonathan, he actually became the, the leader between 160 and 142 B.C. And at that time, that was the beginning of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So both of those two became... Um, part of that. Also, at the same time, you've got Simon the high priest. He becomes high priest and governor between 142 and 134 BC. And anyway, he was assassinated by the son-in-law of Antiochus IV, or Antiochus VII. There are all these Antiochuses, you know. And then later on, you've got this character, John Herennius, Herenus, who he overran the Samaritans. And so now not only was, was the area around Jerusalem overcome, but even the areas north of that. And so they expanded their geographical, um, their kingdom, I should say. I don't know, it sounds weird saying kingdom, but their influence, uh, their sphere of influence. And so now they're controlling the area, not only in Judah, but a lot of area up around in the north. And this is going to be part of the reason why there's this, this tension in the New Testament between the uh, Jews and the Samaritans. Because when John Herenus went up north, he was brutally suppressing a lot of the Samaritans, which created a lot of bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. So this all happened uh, 135 years before the time of Jesus but the history followed itself down to the time of the New Testament era. So sometimes you wonder, why do the Samaritans and the Jews hate each other so much? Part of it was the Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds and people who fell away from true uh, worship of the Jews. The other reason was for these political reasons that happened during that Maccabean revolt. All right, so you've got... 40 years from Antiochus Epiphanes to the death of Simon in 134, the succession of John Hyrannus in 134, and then that was going to continue up until the time when the, uh, the Romans came through, and, and that was the end of that. So it, in First Maccabees, it talks about the, the problem with the nation is a consequence of sin, that there needs to be this fidelity to the law and following the law in a very strict manner. And then the, uh, the author of Maccabees is a Jew who was living between 130 and 100 B.C. So he's looking back, you know, probably 60 years or so and describing this history and then relaying it um, in his own time. And um, this also is the um, trying to preserve the Jewish culture with the strong Hellenistic uh, influence. And so all this was going on. Now, First and Second Maccabees, 
it describes this, but the influence of these different Greek works do work their way into other books like the book of Daniel, for example. So when we get to the book of Daniel, you'll be able to make these connections a little easier and you'll say, oh, well, that's why Daniel's writing the way that he, that he in certain parts of the book. All right, so second Maccabees, okay. So second Maccabees covers the time frame of the first seven chapters of 1st Maccabees. And so it's from the uh, Seleucids coming in and conquering in 175 BC, the death of Nicanor, he was a Seleucid general, 161 BC. And uh, then you've got the Maccabean campaign that was helped by God after that. Uh, Incidentally, that Nicanor, you can go online and and do a search on him and they've got coins and stuff that has his face on it. So you can see what he looks like even to this day. So the point of 2 Maccabees is a little more reflective. And it talks about the persecution that the Jews were suffering is a way for God to bring his people back to their senses before their sin and ruin, which would have happened. And so it was almost as if God allowed their persecution so that they could rise to the occasion. And by rising to the occasion, they would re-own their identity as Jews and they would practice uh, the true faith. Also, it was the uh, there was always an interest in the Jews in Alexandria and the connection with the Palestinian Jews, and so that's mentioned in the very beginning as well. Remember when I talked about um, Alexandria, especially in northern Egypt, became a, a settlement of Jewish and Greek Jewish followers because they were they were part of that Greek culture, but they wanted to maintain their their Jewish identity. Um, one of the questions that was asked while we were on break was the uh, diaspora of the Jews. And uh, the question was, is the diaspora, does that refer to the scattering of the Jews when the Assyrians took over? Or the uh, Babylonian exile when they went down and they were moved off into different areas? But for most people, when they talk about the diaspora, it, it may include that to some degree. But what it really is referring to is, Jews that moved and settled in other areas in the known world at the time. So they settled, for example, in, in areas around uh, um, southern Turkey and mostly coastlines. So they had southern Turkey, they had some areas up around Greece and in, even in, over in Italy, northern Africa, and then all the way over to uh, um, even some theories talk about it like over even to Spain. You know? so, so they settled in the Mediterranean areas and they, instead of just moving and accepting and assimilating into the cultures in which they moved, they, they wanted to keep their identity, and so they lived in groups. And originally, the word ghetto means that, like, small groups of, of the Jews that lived there. And Alexandria was one of the larger areas of the diaspora uh, Jewish cities. So they, they kind of, like, colonized in a sense. And that's typically what they refer to when you talk about the Jewish diaspora. At the same time, they wanted to keep those connections, though, because if you're a Jew and you're living in Alexandria, you still want to have a connection to, to, the, uh, to the temple in Israel and, and Hebrew and all this sort of thing. And so people would come on pilgrimage, and they would come up into Israel, and they'd make sacrifices at the temple because the understanding was the temple was the only real place you could do sacrifice. And then in the time of Jesus, that was the case as well. People would come from all over the Roman Empire to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem so they could offer sacrifice. 
Yeah, and it was part of the Passover that they would be doing that as well. Okay, so getting back to Second Maccabees. So you have the sanctification of the temple. You have the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's chapters 4 through 10. And the installation of the Feast of Dedication. Okay, so the, uh, after, they, after they reconsecrated the temple, then they, they had the feast. And that feast was, or what was, okay, now, I just lost it. <laughs> but the uh, Hanukkah, yeah, so the Feast of Hanukkah goes back to the rededication of the temple in the Maccabean period. So, anyway, I don't know if I'm the only one that happens to. It's like where I'm talking and all of a sudden it just disappears. So, so, so during Christmas time when the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, that celebrating and remembering the rededication of the temple during that Maccabean period. It also has, in 2 Maccabees, you've got some good stories. So you've got the story of Eleazar, and that's chapter 6. This was at 164 BC. And this is kind of like when enough is enough. They were trying to force him to eat pork. And uh, for a Jew to eat pork in that time was basically, you know what, you're going to be uh, giving up your religion. And so... Symbolic in eating that pork is denying your religion, and he was not willing to do that. So, so he was martyred as well as the seven sons were martyred. And the mom even gave a speech that, well, son, if you got to go, it's a good way to go. Um, another thing that's, that's good about the uh, book of Maccabees is it does discuss some common Jewish understanding and thought. First of all, it talks about the affirmation of the resurrection of the dead, and especially among martyrs that if you go to your death for your faith, there is the resurrection afterwards. So now, instead of it, well, even before this, but it it clearly describes that um, in the past, if you die, you go into the ground in Sheol, or Hades is a Greek word, and you're just kind of the shadowy underworld, where now it's talking about, no, there's going to be a resurrection. You know, so there's this idea of life after death, and it's very explicit. There's also the understanding of the spiritual fruits of martyrdom, And then there's also an understanding of intercession of the saints, chapter 15. And there's also affirmation of the positive value of praying for those who have died. So that's uh, chapter 12, 38 through 46. So it talks about these different experiences, which are very Christian in nature in a sense, because a lot of those practices, praying for the dead, the afterlife, intercession of the saints, um, it didn't come out of nowhere. It was something that was rooted in, in the Maccabean time. Well, is that yeah. Well, the Jews believed in the hereafter, but they didn't believe it. Well, cause the question was, is that a consequence of other cultures? And so there is undoubtedly influence when it comes to other cultures because it's not like Israel existed in a vacuum. But keep in mind, I've been talking all along about this development of theology where things that, that may have been very primitive in their initial understanding become more developed and more explicit. And so life after death is one of those. And so it's just become explicit at the point. And it may have helped that the Greeks, yes, they did have their bad points, but they did have a developed philosophy and described life after death in a way that made sense so that the Jews could incorporate part of that philosophy into their religious understanding. You know, so... Part of that makes sense. So there are influences, but, but I think we're looking at something that it just 
theology develops and the understanding develops. Um, yeah. Well, they didn't explicitly believe in the resurrection, but there are hints of it. They just, it, it's almost as if they never really formulated precisely what they believe. But what we do here is that the underworld, that, that Sheol place is where the patriarchs and the, and the prophets and, and the holy people, they, they're just kind of down in the shadowy existence. But they never clearly defined what that meant. And it, it's hard to get a handle on it when you're reading it because it's not quite the idea of they're in heaven, but it's not like they cease to exist either. And so some of this is the vagueness that we have to just kind of struggle with to a certain degree. So the way that I tend to explain it is they just never defined it. So they may have had an intuition. They may have had an understanding. They were using some of the cultural descriptions that they had at their disposal during the time. And the, in the cultural uh, world that they lived in, which was mostly Semitic, um, strongly influenced by Mesopotamia, was that the way that the earth was created and all that, they had this underworld um, place that they called Sheol, is where when people died, they would live in this shadowy existence. But that was different than the Egyptian understanding of the afterlife as being a whole new world where they come to and you know live in almost like they did while they were alive. But it develops. So over time, they become more and more into the reality of the resurrection. And there are bigger and bigger hints. And this is just very explicit. So where that transition took place, um, probably around the time of the Babylonian exile. And then sometime afterwards, the influence with the Persians as well as the Greek philosophy helped. So, yeah. Maccabees is one and two. They're deuterocanonical works. They're not in the Protestant Bibles. And, but they were part of the Septuagint. They got worked into the Septuagint. The early church used them and uh, accepted them. And eventually, when the New Testament canon was connected to it, they connected those books as well. Uh, Jerome, when he did the Vulgate translation, included uh, these works as part of what he called the deuterocanonical, the second canon. You know, so it was included in there as well. Um, but one of the reasons, by the way, that Luther didn't like Maccabees is because it talked about the value of pray- is a good and holy thing to pray for the dead. Luther didn't like that because his concept of salvation was it's solely based on grace and it's based on my faith, which is interpreted as more trust. So I trust in Jesus and he saves me. So, so these other prayers of people and stuff like that don't really make much difference. There's not much need for communion of the saints. And there's a whole, it would take a whole long time to explain that, but that's one of the reasons why uh, Luther didn't like some of these books is because in this, this period of time, it showed, for example, um, it showed intercession of the saints and praying for the, for, for the dead, uh, which goes against what would later become his rejection of the whole concept of indulgences. And indulgences doesn't mean you pay so you go to heaven or anything like that. That just means it's the um, temporal um, purification process that gets done away with while you're on your way to heaven. So it's the whole purgatory thing. People think of it as like a separate place. They misunderstand that. 
Uh, Purgatory is basically the process that happens from the point of death to the entrance into heaven and how God makes you holy. Luther said that you're not made holy. He says that you're called holy and you're covered. But when you're in heaven, you're still the sinful person that you are and none of that gets taken away. You're just called holy and you're covered over with the, um, with the mantle of Christ and that that is where justification happens. Whereas Catholics say that when you're in heaven, you are made holy. You are intrinsically changed, so your sinful inclinations no longer exist. Those are done away with. That is the purgation process. And when you're in God's presence, you are holy. You're not God or anything like that, but you're holy. And you don't have sin and you don't have an inclination towards sin or anything like that. Um, That was the reason why Luther did away with indulgences. It was a consequence of that. The the connection between being made holy, indulgences, praying for the saints and all that actually goes back to this kind of stuff that we're talking about today. It's a historical thing that happens, of course, centuries. 1500 AD is far removed from any of this, but you can see where there are consequences that happen. Pharisees believed in the hereafter. They believed in heaven, and they were very explicit, and that's part of the Maccabean time, that they were explicit in the idea of life after death. The Sadducees didn't, as you all probably know. They were sad, don't you see? You know? <laughs> so the fair, Pharisees were fair, you know, don't you see? The Sadducees were sad, and they should have been sad. They only took the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in heaven or angels or anything like that. So, okay. So, now on the heels of this, we're going to talk a little bit about wisdom literature. And part of wisdom literature can be centered in this whole thing with the Greeks coming with this very strong and dominant culture. And the Greeks were very strong into this idea of of wisdom, and it was a temptation for people to think that true wisdom comes from Greek philosophy and Greek culture and uh, their wisdom, and so they would accept it wholesale, and they would let go of the Jewish wisdom. But it doesn't only exist in the Greek period, but this is what really brought it to a head. Um, Wisdom was something that goes back to the very beginning, And uh, from the very first moments of written records that that have reflections, there's a certain understanding of the value of wisdom and someone who strives toward that wisdom. So, for example, there's wisdom literature in Egypt. There's wisdom literature in Mesopotamia, Sumer. um, The Assyrians did it. The Canaanites did it. It was something that that is as old as is written history. But although there was always this Jewish wisdom that existed as well, when the Greek wisdom became something that looked like it may supplant it, then all of a sudden the Jews wanted to make sure that they didn't lose their real wisdom, which is centered in God, and so they promoted wisdom books. In addition to that, after the restoration and the, uh, fall, of, uh, the fall of Jerusalem in the Babylonian exile, there was a certain thread that came out that wisdom is a natural outgrowth in a sense of the prophetic vocation. So in the past where they were 
um, concerned more in prophecy and kingship, after that started to fade away, now there was a, a new thread that, that surfaced, and it was a focusing on living a wise life through these works of wisdom. And so then that became a part of the experience as well. So think about wisdom literature becoming more popular, even though they would look back and say that it was centered a lot of times in Solomon. But when it was written, it was written in a way that was an answer to the decline of the kingship and the prophecy. And, and uh, it was a, a rise of a way of thinking of integrating Jewish life in a way that was not just the external practices, but an internal wisdom that comes from God himself. So we have examples of this, of course, in many of the, the Old Testament works. Um, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Sirach, and the Book of Wisdom. All of those are, are wisdom books in the strict sense. There are also other books that contain elements of wisdom, some which would be considered one of the wisdom literature and some wouldn't. But you've got Song of Songs, and then you have several of the Psalms. Actually, should have put that on there. Okay, so you've got Song of Songs. You've got some of the Psalms, and I listed a bunch of those. 119, 37, 49, 73, uh, 111, 119. 73, Psalm 73 is an interesting song because it, it, it directly shows this idea of, of the influence of, of other cultures' um, wisdom and how people were, and young people, were looking to that as being real wisdom. And the author of the psalm is saying that we need to hold fast to the Jewish true wisdom. Even though those high flutin' people... You know, they, they think they've got it all, but really, us simple Jews who are just following the law, we have real wisdom. And so it's, it's got a good description of that. We can also see wisdom contained in Isaiah, Amos, Tobit, Baruch, Daniel, and stories at the end, like Susanna and Bell and the Dragon, were, were also part of that uh, wisdom tradition. And wisdom comes in many different forms. It comes in Proverbs. Yeah. Has anyone ever read the, I'm, well, I'm sure you have, like the book of Proverbs, you start reading it. Um, you ever notice how easy it is to get lost in that? It's like you start losing it. It's like you, you say one and then you say another and it seems like they're, and you, you want them to be more directly related, but they're not always so related. So what they used to do in the ancient world is they used to just read a few Proverbs and remember them during the day. And then the next day, they'd read a few more and then do that. And then they'd become second nature. But it was a way of, of keeping that wisdom close, close at heart. Okay, there were riddles that sometime happened. And they it would ask like uh, hypothetical questions, rhetorical questions. And uh, nothing's coming to mind right now. But, uh, oh, I had one and I lost it. Well... Some of the prophets kind of did this as well. They would have these little riddles. And who among you, blah, 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 does not see. And then there's the, the lion howling in the wilderness and not think, you know, that, that he killed something. I'm, I'm missing it. But there's, there's, there's those kind of uh, riddles that they ask questions that the answer to the questions reflect 
some sort of divine wisdom. There are also fables, like stories. There are parables. So the parables, uh, I mentioned the one with Nathan, for example, which is a very good, clear parable, but of course Jesus was all about parables. And there were other parables that existed in the Old Testament times. Um, the book of Jonah, for example, is written very much in a style of a parable. So is the book of Job. You know, that you read the story, and the point of the story is not the history of the story so much, is, is the moral of the story. You know, that's the point of the parable. Sometimes there are dialogues, people talking back and forth. You get that with the book of Job, for example. You know, people talking back and forth and setting up a little bit of a stage there. Um, sometimes you have comparisons being made. You can have allegories, uh, allegories and images. So allegories are something that, um, like you all know this from probably your English class, similes are uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then they'll describe it. You know, So you've got a connection there. An allegory is, um, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's an allegory. You know, so it's a direct, like a metaphor, an allegory. And some of these allegories they talk about as well in the prophetic sense when they're talking about um, God and his vineyard. You know, the, you know, these are these allegories that he uses. And then some of these uh, images that are projected as well. So anyway, there are many ways that wisdom literature is written, and it's a combination of all those, but it goes back to the idea of, of God's divine wisdom, which is given. Incidentally, when you look at descriptions of wisdom in the Old Testament, especially during the Greek era, it takes on a feminine attribute. And you read the Book of Wisdom as one example, and there's this idea of the wisdom being with God from the beginning. And then that would get a, a uh, they would use that image as well to refer to Jesus because Jesus was with God from the beginning, like in John's gospel when he describes that. So that idea of wisdom, but it also gets attached to the Holy Spirit. Uh, sometimes you'll hear wisdom talked about in the sense of the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit and the masculine. He will show you all truth. But there are Old Testament connections that reflect the spirit, which have a feminine attribute. So um, sometimes wisdom itself is used um, more so in the feminine sense in the Old Testament. And so they talk about lady wisdom and holy wisdom, and they use feminine imagery for that. And uh, part of that has to do with this harmonized nature that, that the Jews like to work with. And wisdom itself is something that, that is kind of like in relationship with God. And anyway, it's kind of nebulous, but um, you'll see those sort of things when you're reading through there, and you'll you'll see wisdom almost personified. And because it's personified, they uh, Christians took that as something that reflects the Trinity even before the Trinity was revealed in in Jesus Himself. All right, so wisdom literature is less interested in. God's actions of salvation, all right, the, the, how God saved his people over time. Um, it's less interested in the nation of Israel. It's less interested in political and even religious affairs. You know, so it's not necessarily going to be talking about these different sacrifices and temple worship and um, kings, and it's not talking much about the history of Israel and, 
the patriarchs and all that sort of thing. It's not so interested in that. It's oh, someone's phone's ringing. Okay, you gotta you gotta hit any button. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, where's the any key? Okay, so so wisdom literature is less interested in history, genealogies. So there's there's not this real idea about oh connections in 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 our ancestors and that sort of thing. Uh, it's less interested in specific rituals, rules and regulations. You know, so those sort of things are not the most important thing. What they are more interested in is problems in life, right? I think to a large degree, this is what kind of the modern uh, sensitivity as well. Why is there suffering? You guys never hear that, right? God is good. Why is there suffering? Well, the good news is Job's going to talk about that. Um, he only gives one take on it though. All right. So anyway, why is there suffering? Why is there injustice? Why is there inequality? You know, so why is there? Why is it that certain times in Israel's history it seems like everything goes well, and other times it doesn't go well? The Deuteronomistic um, authors tend to have the idea that their suffering is pretty easy. It's because people sin, sin, suffering. God punishes, people repent, and when people repent, life is good. And you know, so this was kind of the the general idea. But then you still have these. You still have these problems like Josiah. You remember the good king Josiah who reformed and got rid of all the cultic practices and restored the the law and everyone agreed and he agreed that they were going to do this and they were going to be faithful. And then in the end, he still died in battle, battling what he thought was an insignificant Egyptian um, mercenary army. And uh, Assyria was weak and they thought, but he thought that since Egypt was going to come up and, and conquer uh, at that time Israel, they said, well, we can take them. And then he dies in battle. And so you're reading this thinking, and this is at the end of the book of Kings. Well, wait a minute. I thought that if they do everything right, they follow the law and they dedicate themselves to the practices and nothing bad would happen. Yet King Josiah dies in battle fighting like one of the lesser armies that Egypt ever would have brought about. So why is that? You know, so these are good questions. Why is there um, that kind of suffering that seems unjust even? And why is it that sometimes things go well and sometimes they don't? And it seems unrelated often to what was really happening. Well, these are questions they're trying to answer. Why is there evil in general? And yeah, what about that Adam and Eve? Anyway, but yeah, there are those questions like, why do these things exist? And then, in addition to, to answering those kinds of questions, there are other ones. So, what is the secret of life? Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? How should we act before God? And, and what does God expect of us? And how are we in relationship with God? And what is our relationship with creation and God and one another? And so, wisdom literature tries to address those kinds of questions. It's more interested in universal questions that affect all people, not just Jews. So most people can read wisdom books, and it doesn't necessarily have to tie in to the idea of being Jewish or Christian even. You can, those are mostly universal questions. In the Catholic Church, we have this 
description of that. It comes from scholastic philosophy, but it even goes before that, even in the classical philosophy like Augustine, where they talk about this natural law. And natural law is, there's a natural moral law that it's on our hearts, and there's the way that the world was basically put into being, which if we are following the natural law, it conforms to God's law, whether we're uh, specifically Christian or Jewish or not. Um, one example of this is, they would say natural law is married, for example, marriage. There's a natural harmony that exists in a complementary nature between a man and a woman who get married, and then they have offspring. Uh, because of that, that's kind of built into the natural law that marriage is something that supersedes Christianity and Judaism that that idea of complementary nature is built into creation itself. And so, therefore, you don't have to be Christian or Jewish to understand the concept of marriage and the complementary nature of men and women and having children. You know, so this is an example of natural law. In the same way, this wisdom literature tends to be in that realm as well. It's, address, it's addressing universal questions, and it's trying to give universal answers even though oftentimes it's addressing them in a Jewish cultural context. All right. They are interested in seeing God in creation, seeing God in actions, and seeing God in life. And so it's that, that idea of the imminence of God in all things. So there, there are two different aspects of God, God and the nature of God. Um, with and, and keep in mind, like the Old Testament, we're talking about Many different books written over, you know, about a thousand years or so. And so you, you have a hard time using the Old Testament alone to say that this is always the take and this is the angle that God takes in the Old Testament because there are threads and, and there's that pattern that begins and continues through, but there are different takes on it. Like you're taking the, the light and you're shining it on different aspects and, and different ways of understanding things. So... Seeing two aspects, one is that God is imminent. You know, so our very lives, for example, depend on on God. That we would cease to be if God didn't preserve our life. And so, He is imminent in our lives and in our actions, and He's in relationship with us, in relationship with creation, relationship with our world. And then there's also that God is transcendent. God supersedes creation. He's greater than creation. He's greater than our world. He's You know, he's not defined in a pantheistic sense where God is just contained in all things, but he's not above all things. So so you've got this kind of tension there, but you've got both aspects which are true. And actually, Christians and Jews both believe this. Well, most, I should say, um, that God is imminent and God is transcendent, both at the same time. One way to look at it is look at it as like the incarnation. So Jesus is human and divine, but he's both at the same time. All right, not to get too far off on that sort of thing. But the wisdom literature will look at it from those different aspects. So it's seeing God in creation, actions, and life. Um, I mentioned that wisdom was common as a literary genre in the Middle East. And uh, I'll give you a couple examples. In in Assyrian literature, there was this um, poem that was written. It was talking about praising the Lord of Wisdom. You know, they're saying the Lord, not Yahweh, but, you know, one of their gods. And saying, if I walk in the street, fingers are pointed at me. My own town looks on me as an enemy. 
My friend has become a stranger. In his rage, my comrade denounces me. So it's kind of talking about problem of injustice and evil. In, in the same sense, you'll notice similar things in the psalm. You know, the worlds conspire against me. And, you know, this idea of, you know, even though I'm trying to live justly, it doesn't seem that, that other people respect that. And so anyway, that was just a Syrian example. There are also Egypt, Egyptian examples. And this is the instruction of the vizier, Hotep. Anyway, if, if you're one of those sitting at the table, I like this as a proverb, right? If you are one of those sitting at a table of one greater than yourself, take whatever he may give when it's set before your nose. In other words, be a good guest, you know. So we use that one, not specifically, but when, when I was in my first year in seminary, we spent two summers in Mexico, and we'd have these youth groups that would come down from the United States. And uh, the one thing I would tell the kids is like, look, wherever you go, you have to accept their hospitality. And, you know, you may be thinking I'm being nice by, no, it's okay, I don't want anything, I don't need anything, but... But if you're just gracious and thankful and, 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 and show how much you enjoy it and you like it, um, then they appreciate that. And if you have something that's set before you, eat it, even if you don't want to. And, you know, and, and it's like, I understand if you just absolutely can't eat it, you know, then, then eat some of it. You know, but basically it's a way of showing um, like that you're receiving their hospitality and you're grateful and thankful for it. And uh, actually it was amazing because we had... You know, it was like, I don't think there were any kids that just threw their nose up and said, I'm not eating it. Even some of the ones that were vegetarian became meatitarians for like a, for a brief moment. <laughs> but the, the idea in the teaching there is, is to try to show, you know, gratitude for hospitality. Speaking of hospitality, I probably should mention that in our world, we show hospitality in different ways. Um, I use this example with the... Uh, um, with the difference between the Mexicans and the Americans is our hospitality is, okay, there's the fridge. Make yourself at home. Anything you see, it's yours. You know, and, and the Mexican hospitality is, I'm going to cook you breakfast. And I'm going to, you know, and, and we're like, you know, don't obsess over it. You know, it's like, I can cook my own breakfast. I'm okay. No, that would be terrible if you had to cook your own breakfast. You know, so there, there are differences in culture. The, uh, in Israel... They had a concept that hospitality was not just something that you did because it was a nice thing to do. It was, it was your holy, sacred obligation to show hospitality. And so if you had strangers who were coming and visiting, then you had a religious obligation to show hospitality and treat guests in a way that was holy, that went above whether that's being nice or being gracious. It was part of your religious obligation. And so that hospitality gets worked into that. But anyway, so that you'll see this written into the Proverbs a lot of times as well. I gave you the Egyptian one, but it's similar to Proverbs chapter 23, the first Proverbs. So um, there's that idea of, you know, being a gracious um, receiver of gifts. Okay, so where are we at there? Nah, it's a joke. Okay, I'll go a little bit longer here. So wisdom literature comes from a couple different sources. First of all, it comes from the family and, and the practices and the tellings and the sayings of the family. And then it also comes from a more formal education. So there's kind of a combination of those two. 
you all know wisdom comes from families. It's like when grandpa talks, right? You know, there's you know, a little wisdom or grandma says this and there's some wisdom. And then these stories get passed on and these sayings get passed on and then they become remembered and then eventually they got written down. And so uh, you probably all have your, your uh, different family wisdoms. Some you can talk about and some you can't. So, but that was one. Also, there was the formal education because there were also the scribes that they methodically thought about these things and pondered and included it in their prayer and eventually wrote it down and then taught it to their students. The educational pattern of Jews, it, it always started in the family, but there was also this, this need to be educated in the law. And the people who were the experts in the law would often become the ones that would draw students around them and then these students would get taught as well. And so it primarily started in the home. As I mentioned, the, the, the wife would raise the children and educate them to a certain age. And then when they were kind of at that point of uh, maturity, 12, 13 years old, they would have the, uh, the husband take over. And then he would begin instructing the child in the ways of the faith and in the law. And there were some who would also get instructed by these different rabbis. And Jesus was following that similar pattern, actually, because he had um, he was the rabbi and his students were the disciples. So it kind of followed a similar pattern. But you'd have the family and you'd have the formal education. In 1 Kings chapter 5, you have this description that the king and other leaders should possess wisdom. It's not enough just to be a king. You need to be a wise king. You need to follow the ways of God. You need to be a generous king. You need to look after the concerns of the poor and the needy and the orphans and the widows. And you also need to be astute in your decision-making. To give you one good example of this, remember when Solomon was uh, on the throne and people were coming to him for decisions and he was considered a wise king. And so one day you had two women who were saying that this baby was theirs. Basically, one woman stole the baby and the other one said she wanted her baby back, so they both came... Oh, baby back, baby back. So, then we cut. so you go back to the... Yeah, yeah. so they go to uh, Solomon, and uh, say, so you need to make a decision. And one woman saying, it's my baby. The other woman saying, it's my baby. And he has nothing to go on except these two women arguing, saying that they're the moms of this one baby. And so what he says is, okay, cut the baby in half, and you both get a half of the baby. Now, at that, the real mom said, no, don't cut it in half. Just give it to her. Fine. I'd, I would much rather that, that the baby live than be cut in half. And the other woman was going along with it like, okay. Well, at that, Solomon knew that the woman who was willing to give the child over to the other person was the real mother. And so then, you know, he said, okay, no, you're the one. You get the baby. But that's an example of wisdom that was expected to exist in the king's. You know, they were expected to be ones who would be able to give wise judgments. And Solomon, of course, was the example of that. So much so that much of the wisdom books attribute their authorship to Solomon itself. So the example of the Book of Wisdom is often referred to as the wisdom of Solomon. Even though it was written centuries after Solomon, it has a connection with Solomon, who was considered the epitome of the wise king. Okay, but all kings are supposed to have that as well. There are other people written in the earlier days that are considered people of wisdom. So David's chief, 
advisor, Ahitophel, for example, um, David's chief, chief advisor that went to Absalom. Then you also have wise people who are givers of advice. They almost had an official status, like uh, Jeremiah. He was the giver of advice, chapter 18, verse 18. They were usually well off. They were educated. They had leisure time for study. And so, like a lot of things, if, if societies flourish in the culture and arts and the, and the literature, um, there has to be a certain ability where they're not nose to the grindstone 12 hours a day. There has to be some leisure and some, some means. So a lot of the people who were writers of the wisdom books, they had education and they had leisure time to study. There are also wise women mentioned, and in Proverbs, you've got um, as well, they needed to have a little bit of leisure, they had some good speech, they had skill in writing, they had manners, career planning, and they were part of the upper class as well. So um, much of the wisdom literature comes from the folk wisdom of the family, but a lot of it comes also from these educated classes and the people who had enough leisure and time to be able to prayfully meditate and to write many of these things down. All right. Let's look at Job. I think we can handle Job. Oh, wait. Do you guys need a break? Are you good? Can you make it to lunch? Or Okay. All right. We'll go to lunch. Actually, what was it? It was, oh, the pastoral council meeting in Shady Cove. I was on a roll. We were going through the pastoral plan and made it through a couple of the parts. And then, and then uh, we're supposed to go, it was an hour and a half. And so at an hour and a half, you know, I was still ready to try to get another couple done. And they all look at me with those sad eyes. <laughs> I'm like, all right, you remember. At the very end, it's like, all right, it's, it's, it, was, it was 8.30, time to go, I guess. All right, let's look at Job. So when, when I was a kid, I... I read the book of Job, but I thought it was, I thought it was the book of Job. Yeah. So at one point I said, I said, mom, you ever read the book of Job? She's going, yeah, but it's Job. So. All right. Let's look at the background. So Job was most likely. Now, remember a lot of what I'm talking about here, just guesses in the scholarly world. And. My bias, just so you know, is that I take a lot of dates with a grain of salt. I think you can, some of them are, you can very easily say, yes, this was definitely written at this time. Other ones, there could be a thousand years difference because you can't tell by the style of Hebrew or uh, what it's written about. And sometimes there are prophecies and a lot of the dating happens like this. Well, there was this prophecy and it came true at this time. So it must have been written at the time that it came true. But not necessarily. Just because something comes true doesn't mean that it was written at the time it came true. It could have been written beforehand. And then that tradition, you know, continued on. And then later it became true. Um, Sometimes things are dated just because there's nothing that really identifies it within a certain time. And then oftentimes you've got things that are dated because, well, you've got a certain character or a person or a tradition that goes back hundreds of years, that works its way into something that gets finally written at a different time. But the traditions and what it contained was written or told and orally passed on for hundreds of years. So um, many of these times, we think of them like novels. You know, I wrote the novel, copyright, 1986. 
But keep in mind that the Bible is a little more fluid than that. That uh, traditions often don't get written down until certain times. Sometimes you have some things that were written down that get passed down until they were written and combined with other things at a different time. Sometimes older works get interpreted in a way that address modern situations. So you can have elements of both or layering that happens in that way. So but anyway, with that in mind, the book of Job was something that was written more than likely in post-exile Palestinian Israel, writing in Hebrew with an Aramaic style. So we can say this is post-exilic and probably in the Persian period because it's got an Aramaic style, even though it was in Hebrew. And then most likely in the 400s. It was written in a style that was wisdom literature. And he was actually a known figure in wisdom, Job, in a folksy kind of way. And he was famed for his justice as Noah in Ezekiel chapter 14. You know, there's a brief reference to that. But it it seems pretty unrelated to the book of Job. So the book of Job is a dialogue between Job and three friends. So it's written in almost like a play. Job would be a great book to use as a play because you can almost see, you know, the characters going back and forth and, and, and it was written in a way that was very theatrical in that. So you got Job and these three friends who were kind of friends you, you, you don't really want. They're more like enemies than friends. But, but anyway, that was the style. So the big overall question is, What's the connection between human suffering and human behavior? Now, in in certain works, there was kind of a a bias that it's pretty straightforward. If you're suffering, you sinned. So your behavior caused the suffering. In the books of Deuteronomy going all the way through until 1 and 2 Kings, all of those books, with the exception of Ruth, take the approach that if you're suffering, you sinned. Black and white. And granted, the world's not black and white. And even the writers of of the Deuteronomistic history know that as well. But still, there is this tend of black and white conception that when when Israel's doing something right, everything's going to be wonderful. Israel sins, tragedy, and everything wrong is going to happen. But, you know, over time, of course, people realize that, well, that's pretty black and white. It might make sense theologically for certain reasons when they're talking about we need to follow the law. We need to be good Israelites. We need to follow proper sacrifice. If we do, things will go well. In general, that's true. And in general, it's also true that if we sin, things don't go well. But there are exceptions to the general norm. You use the general norm so that you can project what people need to do so they act upright and moral and, and follow the proper religion. Um, but when that becomes an absolute, then you've got some problems. And so Job is addressing that sort of problem. So what is the connection? All right, so we're going to look at that now. So beginning chapters 1 and 2, you've got this folktale between a conversation between God and Satan about Job, who is faithful. All right. Now, I mentioned that as a, a folktale kind of thing, because you know, like when you're reading a parable, you don't want to take the parable too literally. And uh, one example of this is like you've got the, the widow that goes before the judge, and, uh, and she wants to demand justice. 
and the judge doesn't want to give her justice, but she perseveres so much that the judge is actually afraid of her at some point. And so the judge says, fine, give her what she wants. And the point is, persevere in your prayer, as Jesus is saying, and then God will answer your prayer. But the point is not God is an unjust judge that you need to nag to death until he feels scared of you, until he gives you what you want. You know, so you, you, take, you take the overall moral and apply it. And so when you're looking at books like Job, you want to do that with a lot of the characters and a lot of the descriptions. So in the beginning, chapters 1 and 2, you've got this folktale between God and Satan, almost like they're whimsically arguing about whether Job is uh, going to be their little experiment to see if he's going to remain faithful, whether or not it's because God gives him stuff. You know, so you see Satan's saying, well, the only reason he's good is because you're blessing him all the time. If you'd withdraw that, then I bet he'd come over to my side. And uh, God says, no, I think he could handle it. Well, anyway, the, the point here is not that God and Satan are, you know, involved in games of chess using people. But it's setting up the drama, you know, and that's the point. Again, keep, keep focused on the drama and the point of the drama and not the details of the story. So anyway, Job was faithful and he was following God's ways. He was upright and, and both Satan and God both knew it. Well, what ended up happening is God said, okay, Satan, you know, I'll let you do certain things. You can withdraw certain things, but um, there are certain things I'm going to hold to myself. And so then, you know, little by little, these things were taken away from Job. And as they did, you've got this dialogue now, instead of being between God and Satan, you've got a dialogue going on between Job and Eliphaz, and then Bildad, and then Zophar. And the question is, why is Job suffering? It's divine justice, or is something else happening? And at one point, Job seems to be demanding that God appear and defend himself. And the idea is like, if God is just, he needs to, he needs to explain why I'm suffering like I am. He needs to give me the reason in front of me and these, these other three who are nagging me to death. And it's funny because you think about it, well, that's so presumptuous. But people do this all the time, even in today's world, right? You know, it's like, I used to believe in God, but then this bad thing happened and I don't anymore. Well, they're kind of doing the same thing, right? They're judging God and saying God had an obligation to explain himself because God didn't explain himself. Then I therefore have license to do this. And I'm oversimplifying, I realize, and I'm not, I'm not uh, um, minimizing people's suffering and pain and why they would question, but I'm saying that what was going on here is something that happens even in today's world, right? It's universal, that we all wonder, why am I going through this? Why am I suffering? God should explain himself. Yet oftentimes, he doesn't explain himself. Sometimes he does. We like it when he does. And uh, we like it when we're wrong and he's right and it's good. You know, but typically we like it better when we're right and he just agrees with us. Okay, so you've got three characters. Aliphas, he's the older and he's a bit severe due to long human experience. So Aliphas comes in and he's basically saying, well, Job, you sinned, so, you know, you're suffering. Pretty straightforward here. And that was his take on it. This is the traditional... Um, retribution, divine retribution for sin. Job sinned, therefore he's suffering. But Job protests. He says, well, no, it's, 
I, I got to tell you, it's like I didn't do any of this. You know, it's not like I did anything. I don't, you know. And so Job is arguing back against it. Well, then all of a sudden you've got Zophar. Well, Zophar is the younger, overly zealous and excited youth. We don't know any of those, right? So this is like the know-it-all young guy. You know, no, I'm the good Jew and I'm going to tell you why, you why you're suffering because you sinned and you won't admit it. So admit it. And so you've got this um, character of representing kind of the, the young, cocky, arrogant um, religious person. Now, that's a warning, by the way. Both of these are warnings for us because we don't want to be the old man who thinks he knows everything and is going to tell everyone else what God does and says. You know, that we've got to be a little humble even in our old age. The other is we don't want to be the young kid who I'm so new in my faith. I know everything and I'm going to tell everyone else what they need to do. And I'm going to tell them how to do it. And uh, there's a certain arrogance and cockiness that goes along with that. Um, Young priests are good at that. You know, they kind of come out of the blocks and they're going to save the world and tell everyone what they need to do. And, And they don't always have the pastoral experience to know how to handle things. And so they overreact or underreact and and so there has to be some humility. Humility was, does wonders um, for priests as well as people in general, right? So anyway, we got Bildad. Now, Bildad is the eloquent speaker. You know, so he's the representative of the person who, whether or not he says anything different or not, he sure says it well. You know, so. So, but all three of them, they're using a more traditional answer, but they're still saying basically the same things. You know, you sin, therefore you're suffering. So in this, chapters 32 through 37, you got Elihu who challenges Job and his friends and defends God and demands that they submit to God's control. And then chapter 38 to 40, you've got God answering and saying he's beyond human understanding and Job's demands for justice are arrogant. And so Job two times submits to that. So chapter 40 and chapter 42. So in other words, people are challenging. And, and then Job and his friends. And then Job challenges God. And then God says, where were you when I created the world? And, and he goes down the line. And basically, God's answer is, it's for me to know and for you to find out, right? I mean, it's like he's saying that I'm God, you're not. You need to be humble too. And you, you can't demand answers from me because I'll do what I do and I have my reasons, but I'm God, you're not. So there has to be a certain humility and, and understanding that whether you know the reason or not doesn't really matter. What really matters is that you remain faithful. You know, so this is, this is kind of the overall um, gist of the first part of God's answer. And so the theology behind that is we need to be humble when it comes to are asking these kinds of questions. When we ask religious questions, it's great to ask religious questions, but we have to be humble when we do it so that we don't impose our biases on God. You all know how that happens, right? Well, God is just, and then this baby suffers, so God, you must be, you know, and and so people project um, their bias onto God. And the healthier way as a religious person is to approach with a sense of humility I may not know why God is doing what he's doing. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I'm not God. I just have to, at a certain point, trust him that even if he 
um, doesn't make up for it in this life, then in the next he will. And I still lay myself at his feet because there's no better answer for any kind of divine restoration or retribution or anything else. So, so think about it logically in this way. So, so let's say I have this huge tragedy that happens. Um, the, the woman I'm in love with for all my life dies a tragic death, and I'm questioning, why would God allow this to happen? No, that's a natural question. People are going to have those kinds of questions. Well, I can respond to that in various ways. I can stick my head in the cloud and ignore the question, which isn't really very good. I can blame God which might be okay in the short run. I think we do that naturally. You know, it's like God could have stopped that and he didn't. There is some truth to that. Um, Another way to do it is to say, you know what? If God were just, he never would have allowed this to happen. Therefore, I don't believe in God. You know, and another answer is, well, I have no idea why this happened. It'll never make sense to me maybe in this life. But one way or another, I do have the promise that God said that he will make things right, even if I have to wait until heaven for that to happen. And so in the meantime... I just have to, um, as the best of my ability, to trust him and, and be faithful. Well, the last option is the hardest, to be honest with you. But the last option is the best option because it's the only one that has some positive um, response. Because if there is no God, then there's never a resolution to the problem. If God is a mean, angry God, that's not a good resolution either. And if... And if I just stick my head in a cloud, then I'm just going to be suffering and I'm never going to resolve it. And so, anyway, a lot of these, a lot of these things go back to the idea that God says, well, I'm God and you just got to try to take it and understand it. Even if you understand or if you don't understand, I'm still God and you're still part of my creation. So that's part of that God's answer thing. Where were you when I created the world? All right, but in the very end, chapter 42, God restores Job to his greatness And God attacks his friends for accusing him. So we all like that part, right? So, so in the end, you know, everything's restored to Job. And then these holier than thou's who were telling Job what he needed to do and why he was doing it. And, um, you need to repent and you need to say why, and you need to be honest. And, you know, in the end though, um, God corrects them. So that's a lesson for churchy people in particular, you know, that we have to be careful when it comes to our ability of telling people why God is doing something to them or for them or whatever else. That we have to be humble and, and, and not put ourselves in God's position. You know, but to, you know, at this point you think about what would have been the best use of those friends is being present to Job during his suffering. And there's something to be said about being with together at the side of those who are suffering. And, and if you read between the lines, that is contained in the book of Job as well. That, that his friends were there to be there with, show compassion to be with someone who is suffering. We don't necessarily have to give them all the answers. That ministry of presence is often more important than what we say and in, in what we even do. How are we doing? Oh, I got a little time. Okay, so um, it does ask the difficult questions, and it's a good lesson for the smug prophets and the wise teachers with the pat answers, you know, that we have to show some humility, humility in that. 
But the book of Job is actually much more profound than just, oh, grin and bear it. You know, because it really does give us uh, one answer, and there are other answers as well, to that question of suffering. Let's see. So here's some of the questions that it brings out. If God looks after the just and punishes the wicked, why does the opposite seem to happen in our own real experience? You know, why is it that oftentimes the good people are the ones who suffer? And sometimes the bad people, everything seems to go well for them. You know, it, it, that is an injustice, it seems. And even though we don't always know who is truly good in the heart and who is truly bad in the heart, we can see by actions and behaviors that sometimes bad behavior gets rewarded. And sometimes good behavior ends up with, with uh, persecution. Um, one example of this, for look up at the, uh, um, what happened there in Roseburg with the killings at the community college. So you may or may not have heard this because it wasn't in the news, but uh, before each one of them that was shot, yeah, he asked, he asked them, it's like, are, you know, are you Christian? If you are, say so. And if they said they were, he shot them. And if they weren't, then he didn't. And so that's not being rewarded for standing up for your faith and showing good behavior and standing by your conviction because you're being killed for it, right? You know, so the question would be, well, why didn't God stop that from happening? And why was it that the good people who were holding up and standing up for their faith were getting shot? while the other ones who may have believed or may have not didn't. And uh, who knows where we would be in that situation. If someone says, you either stand up for being Christian, and if you do, I'll shoot you, what would we do? I mean, you'd be thinking, well, wait a minute, I got my family and stuff, and yes, I'd be lying, but, you know, and this stuff crosses through your head. And I would hope, I would say, you know what, take me down, I don't care, you know, because you're not getting that over me. But we're not in that situation. We don't know. So we have to be a little humble in that too. But, um, but that is a point. And then you look at a, one of the reasons why a lot of these people do that sort of thing is they crave celebrity status, even if it's notorious. And so the worst thing you do is you turn people like that and, and you plaster their picture on everything and you say, oh, look what he taught and look what he believed and look what he did. And um, the best response is to ignore the person Ignore anything he said or did prior to that so that, yes, there was a guy who did this. He's dead. End of the story. Because then that keeps the copycat criminals from following the example. Yeah, they get the press and then they kind of follow it on. Yeah, it's more, it's more uh, important for him to be famous after he's dead than to be um, alive even. So, But anyway, the guy's mentally ill. We all understand that. But... But anyway, these are the kind of questions that we're dealing with. And it's like, why is it sometimes, you know, good is not rewarded and evil seems like it might be? And then why do people who are evil prosper and honest people don't get ahead? It's like, well, wait a minute, this guy's cheating on his taxes and, you know, and he's doing this and that and everything. And everywhere he falls, he can follow into a, fall into a pile and he comes out smelling like a bed of roses. You know, it's like that kind of saying. It's like there are some people, it just seems like everything comes easy for them. And other people, they struggle their whole lives. And every time it seems like they're just about ready to get there, then all of a sudden another tragedy happens, and then another tragedy happens. And um, you know people like that. You may be people like that. And, uh, but, but I think there, there comes a certain consolation by saying, no matter if things go well for us or don't go well for us, there's a bigger, uh, there's a bigger story to this picture than we 
on this side of heaven understand. And so Job addresses that to some degree. How will one who is faithful find answers to why things happen or what it means about the relationship with God? I mean, that's another good question. So if we are faithful, how do we find answers? You know, where do we turn and who do we look for? And when we're looking for those answers about our relationship with God and when it comes to, you know, our deeper yearnings of the human heart, you know, where do we find those answers? Of course, the pat answers are, well, you'll find them in the Bible, you'll find them in church teaching, and you find them in prayer. And well, well, that's true, of course. But there is a certain struggle in that because even in prayer that you may find peace and you may find a particular answer for a particular situation, but you're not going to find an answer to every situation by going to church teaching and the Bible and prayer. The best you can hope for is that you may get answers to certain things, but oftentimes you'll find yourself at a place that you just have to be at peace knowing that this is where you're at and God still loves you. And, you know, and are you okay with that? So at any moment we have to figure what if we were Job? What if everything were taken away from us and we were in a situation where we had nothing? Would we despair or would we still turn to God and trust in him as our only hope for any kind of resolution and restoration? And, you know, it's the whole thing of the martyrs, you know. It's like um, they place their trust in God and in the end, God saves them, even if it's not in this life, but in the next So it answers the questions. Do we question God's goodness, wisdom, or ways? You know, and if we do, you know, maybe we should look at that a little differently. What gives us the right to expect God to explain everything to us? Does God have to explain anything to us? Well, we say no, but we want him to. I mean, so, yeah, it's human, right? We are human beings. Um, where is true wisdom given? Is it from God? And is it given to us? You know, will we ever have true wisdom answers to these kind of questions? All right, so here's one of the answers, chapter 28, verse 28. No one can find the way to true wisdom. Only God knows absolutely true wisdom. In other words, we can tap into it, but we won't be the fullness of truth. Only God is the fullness of truth. The best we can have is that God reveals his truth to us in a way that we can have a share in it. But we'll never be absolute possessors of everything of it because we're still in a human world and in a human existence. Um, chapter 42, verse 5, God reveals wisdom through reverent worship. So that, that's a nice little inclusion because it does show us that our practicing of the faith brings about God's wisdom and reveals it to us. So it's not like, well, let's go do our motions and worship and our stuff like that. And then we'll have to leave church and everything and then think privately about what God's wisdom's about because God reveals himself and his wisdom through proper, reverent, humble worship. And he reveals that in this sense as well. There's a poem in chapter 28 on wisdom. And uh, that poem is kind of a, ni- a nice little reflection on wisdom as well that, that it's almost apart from the story. It's not Job or his friends, but it's just, just an idea about wisdom in general. And so that, that gives you a, a decent introduction to the book of the Job, book of Job but it, it also talks about divine wisdom in general. And, and the book of Job is one of those books that really gives a good 
context for that whole theme. All right, so in the next five minutes before lunch, any questions about anything or even unrelated things? <laughs> yeah. If the bad people have a higher rank, how can we have a lower rank? So does that mean like if bad people can have more power, position, money, and stuff like that, and sometimes we don't, right? Yeah, of course, this comes from the youngest one in the crowd, right? So, but Job's kind of talking about that. And, and the bottom line is, is that there can be a connection that happens between our decision-making and what comes our way. So if, if I sin, then I can suffer the consequences of sin. And sometimes the bad things that I get in this life are a consequence of that. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes just bad things happen. And it's part of uh, the, the bigger question about why does God allow things to happen in the first place? And does God have to explain to me everything that happens that I don't agree with? And Job's answer to that in this particular book is that, well, God has his reasons. And to a certain extent, we have to trust that in the end, his justice will prevail like it did at the end of Job. And so sometimes that's the best we can do is we just have to say, I just need to be who God chose. uh, God wants me to be. I need to be just. I need to be faithful. I need to be the person God wants me to be. And regardless of what happens around me, I'm going to persevere in that. And so that was one of the lessons of Job. Of course, the bigger answer to that question, of course, implies free will. And, you know, why is it that that God gave us free will in the first place? Because if God would just say, you know what? I'm going to make everything absolutely dependent on people's actions, then we would lose free will. We would no longer be able to choose God because... Um, there would be no decision-making in the process. It would just be all totally evident. And we do know when we're in heaven, God is totally apparent. He's totally evident. He's totally present. And so we don't have these types of dilemmas in heaven. But while we're on earth, we have free will. We can choose God or we can choose not God. And if we choose God, we have to deal with the consequences of choosing God, which means that sometimes the world isn't fair. So you've probably heard that at some point, right? Like life is not fair. I've heard that since I was a little kid, too. It's not fair. Life is not fair. Well, it's kind of true. Sometimes you study for a test, you take the test, and you don't do well. And it's like, that's not fair. I studied for it. And all the pictures don't match up to what I studied. And then there are other times when you don't study and you ace the test. Well, that's not fair either, but we don't seem to care about those not fair. <laughs> so that's a good question, though. Okay, any other ones out there before lunch? Or are you all just... Kind of getting a little more hungry? Okay, so we'll, I'll just do the little prayer before lunch, and so that way all our food will be blessed. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's Word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.